Today's guest is David Lappin, CEO of Lappin International. As business owners, we are constantly faced with making decisions that aren't always easy and that aren't always clear. And sometimes we make them and take on the risk of not knowing whether or not it was the right decision. The work that David and his team does really helps you get there as a leader, as an executive, as an entrepreneur. I think personally, this is one for the books in terms of conversations and it's timely. We do discuss things like AI and how that's changing the world, of course, because it is of the time right now. But the way we discuss it really speaks to the development that we as leaders in the business world could stand to ask ourselves more questions about, because it's in those questions that we'll find the kind of leader that we want to be. If that entices you, then that's what this conversation is. Uh, without further ado, David Lappin of Lappin International. All right. Amazing. David, thank you so much for stopping by today. I hope you've been feeling good. Uh, what side of the world are you on right now? I'm actually in Israel at the moment. Uh, oh. so things, things are quite hot here at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for making the time, man. That's, <laughs> oh man, it's, uh, it's definitely one of those things where uh, I'm glad we get to have your perspective being shared today then. Uh, that being the case, very fortuitous. Uh, why don't we start, I think, with a bit of your own journey, right? Um, now, from what I have here, you have a past where you were, you know, in rabbinic leadership. And I don't think that ever leaves, even if you transfer into other things. I, I feel like that's just something that's going to stay with you forever. But then you transfer over into corporate advising and executive coaching. How did that sort of occur, that transition? Was this always intended? Well, Philip, I got to a point, I guess, where I realized that, that um, if I'm talking to people in synagogue or when I was talking to people in churches or mosques, you're actually preaching to the converted. They kind of they get it. If we're really going to have an impact on changing the way people think and behave, business was the area. And if I could, my thesis was, if I could demonstrate a correlation between uh, people's character, what kind of a person you are, how you behave as a human being, and what kind of growth and profits you can generate as a result of that, then that would be a basis to really impact the way people are. So I started off doing some research in that area. We were able to demonstrate amazing correlation and then start to develop programs of developing leaders who are able to lead in a rather unique way. It certainly was unique at that time. This is going back 30 years. Yeah, uh, leadership and even entrepreneurship being seen as like sexy is relatively new. It, it's not a thing that, in fact, uh, people used to just assume you were unemployed if you said you were an entrepreneur at some point. I'm sure you recall those times, right? Um, right? What was sort of your your first interaction where you had a chance to really take on someone who was in the corporate or executive world and bring all your talents and perspective to that situation? What was your first impression of that experience trying to work through that? It was it was actually in South Africa where I, where I come from, and it was at a very difficult time in South Africa. It was the end of the apartheid years, and South Africa was in the process of transitioning to a democracy, and that was it was tough. It was tough on business. It was tough on white people. It was tough on black people. The whole country was was in turmoil, and um, that's really where I started this work and and, and started operating in this particular area. And I think that the big opportunity came when uh, we had to work with management, who in South Africa at that time was all, to, all white. There were only white managers. There weren't any black managers. 
Um, and, and black people in South Africa were generally uneducated. They just hadn't had the opportunity. Many of them were illiterate. Uh, and to be able to work in the same room with very sophisticated and highly qualified and educated um, white business um, executives, engineers, accountants, and, and black laborers, and to be able to bring them together to create a new and a different culture in an organization and to address issues of really bad productivity that South Africa was suffering from at the, at the time, I think that's when we realized the power that this, that this approach has. Um, that no matter what your political perspective is, what your ethnic or your religious perspective is, uh, it talks to such a deep aspect of your humanity that it's, it's universal. This is powerful stuff. Now, I have this in my notes, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you worked with Nelson Mandela's government during that time? Yes, that, that was during that period of time when uh, I, I was helping them with this transition, more in the business area, but certainly working with the members of his government as to um, how, how South African business would become competitive. It had been protected by sanctions until then, and so the, the economy was pretty pr protected and, uh, and didn't have to complete, compete globally. So we had to get South African business up and running really fast. Um, and to work on on methods of bringing people together in the business environment, that was something that could be done. We developed one of the first um, real codes of business ethics that any country had developed at that time, and um, that is that's still in, in, in fun that's still functioning in South Africa today, uh, and and became the foundation of a new way of operating in in the business field in South Africa. Later on, we exported it to other parts of the world. I love this because the more and more I speak to you, the more I'm beginning to realize some of the things that you're uniquely qualified to discuss are how does business and politics work together? Is that a fair question to ask you? Well, yeah, they don't really work together, do they? But but they but politics obviously affects business and the, and business affects politics. Um, they're driven by different vectors. Driven business is driven by. Um, a, a a way of evaluating effectiveness through profit. If I'm adding value, uh, I will my, my product will be bought. If I'm if I'm adding value in a way that is efficient, I will succeed. The business will grow. People will buy my product, and I'll make a profit. Um, that's a very honest way of measuring the contribution I'm making. Yeah, uh, because it's not really corruptible. At the end of the day, there's, there's no. Of course, there's corruption in business, but not in the business model. The essential free market business model is not is is not really corruptible. People are corruptible, but the business model is not. But in politics, the business model is corruptible because it's based on power, not on not on uh, on service. You would think that politics would be based on service, wouldn't you? That's the whole thing. Why would one get into <laughs> politics? But it isn't so today. Politics is is driven by by power and by power power seekers. Uh, in in most cases, of course, not everybody. You've got the few individuals who really are mission driven. Um, but in business, strangely enough, where one would think business is just money driven and greed driven, my experience in in, in the last uh, more than thirty years of doing this particular work in business uh, and and longer being in, involved in international business, my particular experience is business people are driven by the desire to make a difference to the world. Uh, to provide a product that makes a difference, to employ people in ways that make a difference, to provide a culture, much more than politicians are. Politicians are largely driven by power and influence, and business people are largely driven by mission and purpose. 
I love that. I, and I'm really glad that you that you took uh, the step forward to answer that because I really feel like your perspective and your experiences really could speak to that. And when I look back at all the people I've spoken to and even my work experiences working for others, I've always felt that I've learned a lot and just witnessed people who created such value for society as business owners, you know, even the small business owners, the kinds of jobs they create, you know, uh, and then you look at the other side of the table of the coin of the discussion we were having here in regards to politics and people almost off the bat start off on either one side of either aisle of either belief and almost they're inundated by influence from the beginning, which sort of, you know, I, I don't understand how we got to this place. And maybe this is another discussion, you know, for another podcast. But it, when we review sort of, you wrote a book called Lead by Greatness, right? And while I it is now on my to-do list to read, I, what I will say is, um, especially after having spoken to you in person here, do you believe one needs power to be great? No, and greatness brings power with it. Um, and, and of course, there, there, there are two types of power, many kinds of power, but, but two that concern us. And the one is power from the position I hold. If I am the CEO of a company, I have power. If I am the, um, the president or the prime minister of a country, I have power. Uh, if I am a community leader or a church leader, I have a certain amount of power and influence. So power can come from a, a, a situational position, but power and the power that I talk about in the book is the, is the innate power that comes from a person whose influence is just by the, the, the gravity and the stature of who he or she is as, as a person. And I saw this with Nelson Mandela over and over again and with many others. Uh, I, I talk about him because he's so well known, but, but many, many others. Um, he would have been as influential, and he was as influential long before he became president of South Africa. He was just the type of person who, when he said something, you listened. Um, and not because of the position he occupied, but because of the person that he had become and the person that he was. And we see that a lot. We see it in business. We see it sometimes. Uh, the CEO of a large business is an amazing human being and, and, and carries that statue with them. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes a very informal leader uh, I've seen situations where, you know, sweepers in, in the business, janitors in the business are incredibly influential in their communities and even in the business uh, because of their wisdom and people recognize it. <clears throat> so I think the world is becoming more sensitive to the power of wisdom rather than the the wisdom of power. I love this. And, you know, we now face a world where artificial intelligence, right? We're speaking of wisdom and now we have a commodity of intelligence where white collar workers are the first ones being displaced by technology like this. And from, especially as someone who's a digital marketer, I can see digital marketing as at least the roles that most people who are at the agency level outside of maybe running ads are quickly being uh, made non-essential, non-relevant because it's far cheaper to have this thing aggregate and create some sort of uh, autofill, if you will, of variables that create what is a go-to-market strategy to some degree. So while those who are subject matter experts do better at parsing the information and determining whether or not it is a hallucination, I do find that it still is a preferred option these days as opposed to paying 
$10,000 a month for 90 days or what, what have you. So that model uh, is now inherently broken and it needs to be reevaluated. But I'm, I'm wondering, given your consulting and your experience so far, how do you view what AI is doing to the labor force? It, it, it's really interesting, Philip. And, and, and you know, AI is not new for for decades and decades, universities have been producing people who are artificially intelligent. Um, so the fact that we... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so so now that we have robots that are the artificial intelligent thing, people have to say, well, there's no point in me being artificially intelligent because robots do it better than I do. Um, so I'd better be really intelligent. Uh, so, so the educational institutions and each of us as human beings are being faced with a really important historic moment, and that is to pivot from artificial intelligence, and I'm using that in the metaphoric sense of the kind of intelligence we've had, intelligence which has really been about data management and collection of data. What, what has made you, when you think of somebody intelligent, you know, what, what have you thought of somebody who knows a lot of data, somebody who can quote a lot of stuff? somebody who knows how to manage all that data in his or her mind and do something with it. Um, but that's all the stuff that technology is doing much better now. So we have to reevaluate what intelligence means and, and, and certainly move to the area of wisdom rather than, than, than straight intelligence. Um, and, and so we have to rethink education institutions are the most archaic businesses in the world. They have shown no capacity to adapt. Uh, we're still teaching kids and, and students the way we did a hundred years ago. Come on, I mean, everything else has moved on except the places that are supposed to be educating us to move on, um, and they're stuck in the past, and 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 that's going to be a problem for them and a problem for people. So we've got to ask ourselves, each of us, whether we're in digital marketing or we're in teaching or we're in whatever area it is, what is it that I can? What value can I bring that technology? cannot and should not bring. Because anything that technology can do, I shouldn't be doing. Um, I, I think back to an experience you asked about some of that early time in, in South Africa. One of our big problems there was, um, and it's very similar to today, although this was over 30 years ago, the threat to the labor unions of mechanization on the mines, on the gold mines. So in South Africa, the gold mines employed hundreds of thousands of people. It was a very important a part of the economy and of the socio-political and socio-economic environment. Um, and as mechanization was being introduced, and particularly as sanctions were coming down, South Africa was able to acquire uh, very advanced mechanization um, uh, methods of mining, which meant that hundreds and hundreds of, of laborers were fear, feared being put out of work. And one of the things I had to do was to try and bring the labor unions around to an understanding of why this is a good thing without being manipulative, trying to be genuine with them. And my approach was, it's unethical for me to ask you to do something which a machine can do. Um, that, that's wasteful. If, if there's a machine that can do something, a human shouldn't be doing it. Um, but what a human should be doing is being asked, asking himself, what is it that machines cannot do? And that's where we get into the area of connection, of, of human, of real human connection, of being able to inspire. Um, machines can't yet really inspire people. Uh, inspiration is human energy. It has to come from the heart. It has to be authentic. It has to be genuine. They can inform, machines can inform people. They can guide people. They can do all sorts of amazing things. 
Um, but we have to inspire each other. We have to care about each other. We have to empathize for each other. Uh, we, we have to be there for each other uh, in ways that we haven't had to in the past. So I think we do have to redefine, and that applies to entrepreneurs. You, uh, you, you're bringing technology into the world, and, and, and that's great. But that technology just becomes a commodity very quickly. What are you bringing together with that technology? What are you wrapping that technology in? What humanity are you packaging that technology in so that, that, that makes it unique? If Starbucks were just selling a cup of coffee, they couldn't charge the, the price they do. It's because they're selling a whole lot more than a cup of coffee, and hopefully genuinely, not just in terms of image, but that one really goes into a, a Starbucks or now any any coffee shop and, and has a different kind of experience. And so entrepreneurs have to ask them that themselves as well. Yes, my piece of brilliant technology is going to solve a problem. That's great. And before you can count up to 10, there will be a thousand other people with the same technology. Um, and, and you've just become a commodity. So, so in, in solving for human problems, we've got to be looking at the humanity as well. Oh, this is big. This is big because conventional wisdom, at least in modern times, it used to be people fell in love with their product and it was all about just that. Then people have been saying, you know, fall in love with the problem and you'll be able to continue to develop a product that people want. But now we have a different problem that goes beyond our own products and services. And this is the problem of what are we going to be doing as humans find out more and more of the things that machines can do better. You know, uh, people talk about Amazon factories being able to put robots in with the lights off, which would be a huge cost reduction, right? And just have these robots place these packages left and right inside a warehouse for hours on end. It does make far more optimal logical sense to just have that there and move people to where they belong. And then we're talking about this idea of emotional intelligence, which is a kind of power, if you will, right? There's a talent, a skill to that. Whether AI will be able to replicate that, maybe in the AGI era, I, 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 that I don't know. I Speaking out of my depth here, you know, large language models and vision models, these are all things I'm still currently learning as well. And I'm not a programmer, so you know I'm further behind than most. Um, but I do try to, and always have, and I, I'm getting to this because, uh, especially with your experience as a consultant and in leadership and the types of movements you've had, where do you place emotional intelligence and these soft skills, if you will, interpersonal, intrapersonal uh, communication in terms of a skill set that may be needed in the future in contrast to where before you could kind of get by without that. And what does that say for those who aren't outgoing? And, you know, th it starts to open a lot of can of worms. And I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, so, so for me, the, 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 the trap here is to talk, to, to talk about it as EQ skills. The moment you talk about it as skills, I tell you AI will get to do it. <laughs> There's no skill that AI will not figure out how to do. Um, so if we think of, in, of, of emotional intelligence as a skill set, we, we're already uh, limiting our, our time span in terms of, of, of how long we'll be able to out, uh, outperform the machines. Um, so, so I'm also careful to say what AI will never be able to do because who would have thought a little while ago that it could do what it does now? Um, and, and I think any skill it will be able to learn, but it doesn't have a soul. 
uh, you know, and here I put my rabbi hat on as well. I just say human Please, being. Yes. Soul. <laughs> and, and and if you can use your soul, um, you know, one of the chapters in my book is there's not a soul in the boardroom. Um, and and if if you can bring your the, the soul into the boardroom, if you can bring the soul into your business and into your product. And that was one of the brilliances of there, there are many examples, but but Steve Jobs is a great one. Apple products had a piece of Steve Jobs' soul in it. Um, Virgin Airlines has a piece of of, uh, of their founder's soul in it. Uh, Starbucks with with Howard Schultz and these these great businesses had a piece of their founder's soul in it. If you can access your soul, this is a lot of the work we do with with founders, with entrepreneurs, and with CEOs of large organizations. If you can access your soul and bring that into your business, not just into the culture of your business, but into the product you're designing. Uh, then you're on a different level altogether and your products are on a different level altogether in terms of, of value. In our experience and research, failure in startups is very often because of leadership failure. So the, the leaders just haven't grown at the pace that the business has grown. Um, and very often it's the other point that you made of the, of the founders, of the leaders of a startup falling in love with their product or with their technology. Um, and then... It goes a step further, and even falling in love with a with a customer is not far enough. You need to fall in love with people, with humanity, and then determine their problems and solve for them. That's operating at a different level. Instead of I've got a product, it solves for a problem, or I'll create a problem for it to solve, and now I'll try and persuade the world that this is the best thing for them. That's that's kind of the standard business model, isn't it? Yeah. You kind of think of this idea. Sometimes you think of the problem first and then the solution. Sometimes many entrepreneurs think of the solution first and then look for the problem. Uh, and then they tweak the solution to fit the problem. But but how different is it when you're not in love with the technology, you're not in love with the, uh, the product, you're in love with humanity. You're in love with people and what I can do for people. And I don't know what vehicle that's going to be. Am I going to do it for people just by the way I greet them at the at the bus stop? Uh, or when I'm sitting next to them in a plane, am I going to do for people by the way I teach them or raise my children? Am I going to do for people by the way I run my business or the products I make? We don't always know in what way we're going to change the world. Um, you know, the, the page and, and Bryn, when they started Google, didn't, weren't sure how they were going to change the world exactly, what that product would look like. Even Bill Gates talks about the fact he wasn't sure what that would look like and how it would change the world. They just knew they wanted to change the world. Um, so, so I think that this emotional intelligent component is so important in the new way of thinking. It doesn't matter whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. It doesn't matter whether you have good EQ skills or not. You have a soul. And if you learn how to use your soul in the way you think about your business and the way you live your life, you immediately differentiate yourself because others have your skills, but nobody has your soul. And if you can use your soul in the way you operate, uh, you will uh, outperform anybody. I love this. I think that often the question one operates under determines whether or not they get closer or further away from where they want to go, what they're trying to accomplish. And more often than not, uh, especially for when it regards ourselves, which leaders have to constantly be aware of where they are themselves and have, have hyper self-awareness. Again, this is my assumption here. Uh, asking the wrong question 
and getting the right answer to that question is probably the worst case scenario for leadership. So if and when you do find yourself in moments of doubt, is this the proper path? And this is getting deep, right? But to add context and flavor to this, I think it's it's very timely that we're talking not only about technology that's being disruptive, right? Uh, the chaos in the world that's plain for everyone to see, right? It's magnified by the amount of cameras and channels that are constantly broadcasting what the world is doing these days, right? So you have all that noise, then you're trying to run a business and run a team and lead them. And at the same time, you're trying to understand yourself, uh, which is quite possibly the biggest task possible. Why am I here? Right? But that question itself, asking it, I'm not sure if just asking that question is going to get you the answer that's going to propel you forward. So when even you yourself are in doubt, having done the things that you've done and you're looking to create progress and a step forward, is there a question that you turn to to ask yourself to create the opportunity, which I believe is the only thing we can do, to create the opportunity for forward progression, for a movement forward internally? Yeah, great question. There are two questions that I that I focus on, and and um, not just with myself, but with all of our clients as well. It's who am I and why am I here? Um, and here doesn't just mean in the world. Why am I here at this moment? Why am I here talking to Philip at this moment? Um, what is that? Because there's a why to every moment of our lives, not just to our lives in general. And we need to school ourselves into checking in with a why not driving ourselves crazy and becoming neurotic, but just checking in all the time is why, why is this? What is the opportunity? It's not so much about creating opportunities, it's discovering them. The opportunities are put in front of us. Uh, we're just usually blind to them because we're distracted or we're involved in our own ego. Uh, you don't have to create opportunities. Millions of opportunities are put in front of you. Um, if you start adopting a mindset of, of why am I here at this moment? What am I here to do? What is this opportunity? What does it look like? What am I here to learn? Uh, what am I here to share? What, what, what am I here to experience? Um, so, so that that why am I here at this moment is an important one. And who am I? And those are the two re foundational pieces of the work that we do with the leaders that we develop. Um, so we have a methodology for, for who am I? which is a way that, that gets to the very essence of your value system, how you make choices, not just moral and ethical choices, but the moral and ethical choices affect everything else. As I said to you, bring your soul into your business. That means bring your values into your business, bring your values into what you make and how you deliver it and how you build a team and a culture. That's all part of those values. So we've developed a very sophisticated, brilliant process that is so illuminating. The process itself is amazing. The problem is that it's needed one-on-one -on -one coaching, which has been time-consuming and, and expensive, and our capacity is limited, and, and so our clients' uh, resources limited. So we've just released a digital version of that, where for a fraction of the cost, an individual can do it online, uh, and it, again, using AI, asking very probing questions and leading you down as a, question, a, a path of self-analysis and then using all the data that we have of the, the, the thousands of people we've done this with and helping you map out your, your own value system, that defines who you are at this point in your life. Uh, and it's a magnificent tool. So when you have a dilemma, you're able to look at this and immediately say, if this is the person who I really am, then this is what I should be doing, not that. Um, it, it makes it very quick and very easy to make those decisions. 
And the other piece is why am I here? And that's the, the, the piece of personal purpose. We haven't digitalized that yet. Uh, so that's still something that we train people. And in the book, in Lead by Greatness, I give people method as to how about how to go about that, doing that uh, yourself and answering the question generally of why am I here in this world? But as I said earlier, our, our job is to become more specific and actually question that constantly at every moment. I love this because it, at least what I'm getting from it, and please correct me where I'm wrong, is uh, in order to truly understand what decision you're about to make in any given point in time, you need something to measure against. And if you have an awareness of your values, the things you care for, the things you stand for, then you can measure the decision moment against those things to determine whether or not it's bringing you closer or further away from that. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. And our research has shown that everything you regret in your life are decisions you made that were not aligned with your values. When your decisions are aligned with your values, even if they lead to hardship, you know, you might look at your values and decide, I've got to resign from my position. This is not a company I should be working for. And that might lead you to being out of work for six months. It might, it might not be easy and com or comfortable, but you'll never regret it. You never regret doing acting in alignment with who you are at your core, what your soul really is. So it's a matter of being able to articulate that, to be able to look at that and to be able to say, this is who I am, is what I'm doing or about to do aligned with who I am or isn't it? Wow. And then you think about sort of the alignment of an entire nation and their yes, values and how, that, and how that impacts people's decisions. And, oh, wow, the implications. Are so it used to be in the, in the United States, for example, that was the role of the Constitution. It doesn't really work very well at the moment because of the diversity no. of election. But, the, um, but that was the idea, wasn't it? That yeah. You've got a Supreme Court of, of nine smart people who sit there and all they want to decide is, is this aligned or isn't it? We have a constitution, we've agreed it. Is this aligned or isn't it? And that's the kind of question that we need to be asking ourselves all the time. Once we've done the work of, of, of articulating who we are at a soul level, what our values are, then our decision points are simply, is this aligned or isn't it? David, this is truly a conversation that I think encapsulates uh, more than just corporate leadership. And if you will, and it's just exemplary of what it is the work you do is, right? Because the minute we, like you said, the minute we try to stick to EQ as a skill, well, a machine can probably do some version of that, right? And the same thing goes with the minute you try to think of leadership as some kind of skill, if I'm picking up what you're putting down here, well, it becomes a commodity and that's not what kind of leadership you help people activate inside of them is about there's a there's a whole a holistic if you will a switch that is turned on that you're looking to have people activate and find within themselves to move with purpose or on purpose for for uh, lack of a better term there uh, to try to get that picture across and that's what you and the team at Lappin International and that's what you're working towards to create more of that in the world and when I think about the rabbinic times and then how you stepped into that. I think it's beautiful poetry to see how that happened because not much has changed other than where you focus and where you focused, I think is super important because these are the people creating jobs and shaping the economy truly. Nice. So it, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've learned a lot here today and uh, hopefully I've also made a friend in you and uh, I can't wait to pick up your book and learn more about how you view greatness and leadership because the world needs it today. 
Thank you, Philip. Look forward to hearing more from you and and uh, and more about you. And uh, I, I do look forward to it. And thank you for this conversation. It's been lovely. Thank you.